Today is Saturday, February 10th, 2018. Time for episode 45 of the Barnhart Podcast. No, we didn't take the week off to go to the Super Bowl or even watch it. I was a bit under the weather, but I, I can say I was doing better than Bitcoin was. But I'm pretty much back to full speed now and ready to do the podcast. Anne, are you ready to go too? I'm ready to go, man. Um, so super nerd, thanks to all of your prayers out there. Um, started a new job and descended into a new uh, biological petri dish, and uh, <laughs> your your uh, your immune system was challenged. Am I? Did I? Is that? Did I understand the situation correctly? <laughs> yeah, for the the previous job I had, I, I'd been working uh, full time remote from home, so uh, I was only around my family, and so getting back around a bunch of other coworkers of. Um, Various backgrounds and various other gene or, or, or germ pools. Yeah, I should have expected to get sick. <laughs> I don't know why that took me by surprise, but uh, it's like it's like the first week of school. Everybody gets sick. Well, a little little tuberculosis builds character, puts hair on your chest. No, so it, it wasn't sh- shake it off. <laughs> uh, this I, I was much much uh, luckier than that. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> well, in, in the top of the news in the re- in, in the world, the Olympics are going on. Yeah, I'm about that excited too. Nah. <laughs> Nobody cares. cares. <laughs> um, in the news, I, sta- I, I started hating the Winter Olympics um, when I was a child, and I understood what homosexual men were, and like, oh, that's what those guys are. The exception being Scott Hamilton from 1984, who um, it, it, by, is is a Christian and by all appearances a great guy, a family guy, uh, tremendous tremendous human being all around. Um, but you know, ever, and ever since Scott Hamilton, it's been so um, sodomitical that you just you just can't even watch it anymore. And now they're getting like militant about it. Sorry, no, not interested. And you know, sorry, but the rest of it, you just skiing. Um, is it really interesting to watch downhill skiing? I mean, it it, it just really isn't. And if you're from a culture, no offense, if but, you're from a culture where, where skiing is like an, a practical mode of, of uh, transportation, it's probably why the Nordic people always win the uh, cross country skiing. And I don't even know what the proper term for that is. That's just what I call it. It's like cross country running, but on skis. I can I yeah. can see where when you live in an area that actually gets tons of snow. And in your winter last 10 months, like, I don't know, Russia, I can see why they, they find this really interesting. But uh, the majority of the United States, we don't, aside from you know, the far northeast and, and Minnesota, we don't really have that much of a, of a winter once you get past, I don't know, the Mason-Dixon line or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the West, you don't have it either. But you know, that also shows just how, you know, sports focused we tend to be in, in, in our society that uh, we, we consider this to be such a big deal. I mean, okay, I, yeah. guess, I guess. And, you know, it just jogged my memory. There is there's one sport in the Winter Olympics that is just completely macho to the point of being incredible, but nobody ever watches it. I believe it's called biathlon, which is a combination of cross-country skiing, like sprinting on on cross-country skis, but then you have to stop periodically and you have a you have an air rifle or a rifle. And then you have to shoot at targets. You have to, you know, kneel down, set up and shoot at and hit targets. Anyone who's ever done any sort of training with, you know, rifle shooting or anything. When we go to to schools and training centers and we do this training with with long guns and stuff. Good heavens, we're, you know, our breathing rate is completely calm. You're not in a state of exertion in any way. Can you imagine like running wind sprints 
And then between running wind sprints, you have to shoot a, a long gun at a target without and, you know, no, no tripod, no bipod or anything like that. All you can do is kneel and shoot that way with your body heaving from from running wind sprints. Now, I'll admit that's macho. That's really macho. But of course, they never show stuff like that. Um, that that's something that could actually be potentially very interesting. But we gotta we gotta have the 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 little uh, sodomite boys, you know, doing the the triple axles and the triple lutzes and stuff. Yeah. Well, kind of, I, now that you mention it, I I definitely recall having seen that sport before in previous Winter mm-hmm. Olympics, and um, I'm sure I'm sure they're doing it again uh, here. Of course, they're a great place to be skiing and shooting. A lot of that happens right around right around the uh, North Korean border too. But Indeed. <laughs> there's, I remember watching on a show once. It was, um, I believe, it was the British Top Gear show uh, before it got crazy, where they were doing a a, a competition uh, of of they they were mimicking cross country ski or the biathlon but with cars. And uh, one of the announcers was talking about that real biathletes when they come in to to shoot, they actually time the shot between their heartbeats like an actual mm-hmm. military sniper because exactly what you just said, their heartbeat is racing at 180 beats a minute because they literally have been sprinting all out exertion. It, that that's that's something that I don't think the the average viewer really understands. And of course, unless you live in a Nordic type country where cross country skiing is how you get around and uh, you shoot, whether it's standing up or in prone position. To um, and if you, if you don't get if you don't shoot accurately you don't eat. I can see where in the Nordic countries this is you know kind of life actually. So that, that it has a little bit more currency and and the rest of us just kind of look at it and say that looks cold. So indeed. So God bless them. The medals podium on on biathlete on the biathlon will probably be Norway, Finland, Sweden, or something like that. And God bless them. Let them have it. Absolutely. Ah, now. Now we go into the not so happy news. Um, more news yeah, coming we were out. Actually, that was just all a whole big procrastination so that we <laughs> don't a- have to actually talk about what is happening in Rome. But Rome, we're China, kind of, and everywhere else for that matter. Yeah, we're kind of morally obliged to address this. So where do you want to go first, my friend? Uh, let's, we, we talked a bit about uh, the church and uh, China last time, but uh, it, it seems to be getting even more crazy where, where now it's not just the, it's not just Rome telling the lawfully appointed bishops to stand down, but uh, it's, it's even, it's even more to the point where they're, they're basically that the lawfully appointed bishops are being stripped of all faculties and told, you know, told to go away. And, and so mm-hmm. the, I don't know, have, have they even formally re- removed the, um, the, um, what is it? Um, not exorcisms when, when the, the schisms and everything that were incurred when, when the um, CNPC, whatever uh, Chinese national patriotic Catholic association of what's happening now, when they made their bishops, <laughs> they, they all officially get uh, excommunicated and become schismatic. Has that all been formally removed or is Rome just saying, eh, whatever, take over. I, I suspect that what they'll do, um, I've not heard that they've formally promulgated any legal document, and I, I kind of suspect that they won't. I, I suspect that the modus operandi is just to blow everything off, leave it in a state of complete chaos, confusion, neither yes nor no, both yes and no, so that nobody really has any idea what, what's going on. And you see what the fruit of that is. When you, when you allow things to fall into chaos, what you're basically saying, and we've talked about this before in terms of you know the political spectrum from anarchy, which is technically the farthest right you know, total anarchy is on the farthest right. Total um, dictatorial oligarchy is on the on, is the farthest left. Um, 
But then the, the shape of that political spectrum, it isn't just a straight line with anarchy at the furthest possible position away from um, oligarchical tyranny. In fact, the, sh the shape of the political spectrum is what's called a torus in geometry, which is a donut. I mean, that's what a torus is. It's a donut. And so what that means is that when you get out to these, to these what we would call in our linear thought ends of the political spectrum – what that actually means is these two things are, are sitting right next to each other. They're proximate to each other. So it's no surprise when uh, dictatorial oligarchies push things into a state of anarchy, which is what anti-Pope anti Bergoglio has said from day one, that that is his agenda. Hagan Leo or Hagan Leo in, in Spanish literally means make a mess or colloquially colloquially translated means raise hell but he's used the words chaos he's used you know he says shake things shake things shake up the um the diocese um make a mess raise hell da 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 da, da. create anarchy because what comes out of anarchy anarchy is never permanent never it is always an interstitial phase between um, one form of government and generally a worse form of government. Hardly ever, very, very rarely in because of, you know, fallen human nature and so forth. When things descend into anarchy, does, does more order come out of it? It usually moves into some horrific, disordered um, tyranny. And so that's what these tyrants want. They want to break everything down so that they can then swoop in. And what you, what happens when you have anarchy is that the biggest thug wins. Well, obviously, in the case of the Chinese situation, the biggest thug is is the red Chinese government itself. I mean, they're just looking at this and salivating all over themselves. Rome throws the whole thing into chaos. It's both yes and no, neither yes nor no, who's the bishop, who isn't the bishop. Just throw the whole thing up into chaos. You've got people saying things like the, you know, the Chinese. What is the quote? The Chinese are the the best uh, the best implementers of of social justice doctrine or something. I mean, saying things that are just absolutely stupefyingly um, false and and ridiculous. Throwing everything into a state of chaos. Who's going to come in and 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 sweep this up, and who's the biggest thug? It's the red Chinese government. And so what that means is that for all intents and purposes, the Chinese uh, Catholic Church, the, the, the church, or more accurately stated, the, the Holy Catholic Church in China has now been essentially destroyed. Um, it's essentially been surrendered and handed over to the government, um, and this is uh, reports from Rome are are that this is almost entirely the doing of the Secretary of State uh, Pietro Perlin, this guy who's six only sixty three years old. Everybody kind of agrees that this guy is he's intelligent, he's ruthless, 
he's an arch heretic, just as they all are, and he wants to be the next quote unquote pope. And I suspect that whether he's pope or anti pope, he probably doesn't even care that much. He wants the power. He wants the power that Bergoglio now illegitimately holds and wields. He wants that. And there's even suspicion that tying this all together now, um, so he wants to be the great man who, the powerful man who um, f- solved the Chinese problem. Well, they have no problem, quote unquote, solving the Chinese problem by completely de- destroying the legitimate uh, Catholic Church in China. They don't care. They, don't, they, don't, they clearly don't care about anything. So now that links in to all of this sex abuse stuff that's been coming out. I, it would not surprise me at all when all is revealed at the general judgment if we find out that it was exactly this Secretary of State of in the Vatican, this Pietro Perelin, who has finally pulled the plug and has said, all right, this Bergoglio, we're done with this guy. Um, and we're going to now start leaking out this information that he has, in fact, been consciously enabling and willfully lying about um, this whole zero tolerance policy, especially with regards to this case of this bishop in Chile, this Barros, who was, he was already a bishop, he was a bishop in the military, and then all kinds of complaints against this guy, active boy raper, very, very credible, and many people testifying, look, I, I witnessed this guy. I was being sexually abused. Barros was in the room watching, in fact, the sexual abuse of me by this other priest, Karadima. That was part of a, of, a, of a group sexual experience that was going on in the room. Karadima would engage in sexual activities with this Barros. Then Karadima would break off, come over to me as a, as a child. This is a man talking, but he was a boy when this happened. The Karadima would abuse me. Barros would stand there and watch voyeuristically as part of a, a group sexual experience that was going on in this room. And this has all been researched, investigated by the secular authorities in Chile, which found all of this completely credible. Um, and then now here's where I suspect Pietro Perelin, the secretary of state, who's just sold out the Chinese wing of the church. Here's where I, where I strongly, strongly suspect he comes into play. He's told his people in the Vatican, this Bergoglio has to go. We need to force him to resign. Now, bear in mind, I'm putting resign in scare quotes because how can you resign from something from an office that you've never held? But suffice it to say, they want Bergoglio to go away. That means resign. They want to force him to resign. Okay. Um, So they can call another faux conclave and elect another anti-pope. That's where this is all going. But... Perelin says, we got to get rid of this guy, start leaking this stuff. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith had under its jurisdiction until the advent of Bergoglio this investigation of these child sex abuse claims, okay? And they continued to do that to some extent. They, they essentially were completely hamstrung. Um, they wouldn't, Bergoglio would not allow any enforcement. It was leaked years ago. Now, it's been almost five years now, Bergoglio's. It was leaked years ago that within the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, there were two stacks that any of these um, 
any of these child abuse, child sex abuse claims, they were sorted into two stacks. One stack was for people who didn't have friends in high places, namely the Bergoglio circle or Bergoglio himself. Those could be investigated. The other stack was all of these people who were in the the lavender mafia, as it's called, which is the sodomite mafia inside the Vatican and were um, also friends of Bergoglio and so forth. This Barros from South America, clearly he's 100 percent. He's he's a he's a toady of Bergoglio. The CDF investigates this guy, Barros finds all of the all of the witness testimony and everything to be completely credible reports back not only to to Bergoglio not only should this guy not be made a bishop of a of a metropol- of a metropolitan diocese this guy should probably be laicized this guy should be removed Bergoglio sees this. This is given to Bergoglio by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, bear in mind, Bergoglio has said repeatedly that he's never heard any evidence, that no one has ever presented any evidence to him that this Baros is, is guilty of anything. Um, excuse me, the secular authorities in Chile, his own CDF, has presented him with, with a statement of findings recommending that Baros be laicized. What does Bergoglio immediately turn around and do? Makes him a metropolitan bishop. of It's called Osorno, I think. It's a metropolitan diocese in Chile. The, the people in Chile, when Bergoglio did this, were absolutely up in arms. Th- this guy is very notorious down there. They know this guy's a boy raper. So when Bergoglio did this, there was a huge uproar. Now... They send Bergoglio on this trip just a few weeks ago down there. They know it's going to be a disaster. They know that Bergoglio is going to be confronted about this. Bergoglio, um, just being the imbecile that he is, just lies through his teeth, lies through his teeth about the whole thing, which is basically walking into Pietro Perelin's trap for him, um, you know, in terms of these people, what what can you do except root, root for casualties across the board, um, one against the other? And, you know, I made a post the other day. It said, man, when this when this culture of omerta, when this mafia that these sodomites engage in and run and they protect each other and they won't say anything, when that breaks down, man, nothing is nastier in this world than a sodomite. And they will go after each other like like starving piranhas. And I think that's what this is. So Bergoglio lies through his teeth over and over and over again. Just just a few weeks ago when he went to South America, there's no evidence. Anyone who says anything against um, against this Bishop Barros is engaging in calumny. This is very, very interesting because I was told to my face, exactly the same thing, almost exactly the same thing, as if these guys are reading out of the same playbook. I had the extraordinary misfortune of crossing paths with a man that it was later revealed to me is one of the most notorious layman sodomites inside the Vatican. And I remember being haughtily lectured to by this man at one point, and he said to me, and this is a face-to-face conversation, this isn't on Skype or anything, he said to me that it is a mortal sin for you to even suspect someone of being a sodomite unless you have videographic evidence, which is, which is very similar in spirit 
to what Bergoglio, this argument that Bergoglio is trying to make. You can't say anything against anyone unless you have videographic evidence of them, you know, committing sodomitical acts or, you know, raping children or whatever. Isn't that interesting that they're all kind of reading from the same playbook? And the, the one that I had the extreme misfortune to meet, this guy presents himself in public as one of the farthest right trad Catholics in the English speaking world. I mean, so, I mean, it's just it's just crazy that it's for these sodomites. The weird thing that I think a lot of people don't understand and realize is that for them, the sodomy is the most important thing in their life and it transcends everything. It transcends, you know, quote unquote politics. So so what you'll end up with is you'll end up with these sodomites, some of them who identify with being on the extreme far left politically, some of them who who identify as being on the extreme right. They're they're conceivably engaging in sodomy with each other in the Vatican. Um, they're all blackmailable. The only thing that matters, the highest priority and their highest loyalty is to the sodomy first. And then it's to to, you know, quote unquote politics and where you stand within a within a right left spectrum. That's all subordinated to the perverted sex. And again, this is one of these concepts that is just really difficult for morally sane people to get their head around. Um, but it's absolutely the truth. So I think that uh, Paralene has, has, has called it and said, this is enough of Bergoglio. Let's start leaking this. The Associated Press immediately started picking this up. Um, both the sex abuse stuff and the Chinese stuff is appearing. In fact, there's two Chinese headlines right now on Drudge. So this stuff is getting out into the mainstream. Oh, not and, not um, just Drudge. The, the the headline that really caught my attention was who made Xi Jing? However you say his name, the the, the premier of China, Xi the, Jinping, the, the head dog yeah, in charge. Yeah. Who made him the Pope? And the subtitle was a Vatican China deals imminent, and millions of Chinese Catholics should be afraid. This is the Wall Street Journal. And granted, it's an opinion mm-hmm. piece, but still, I mean, this is not exactly you know the Catholic news of, of what's happening now. I should I need, I need a better phrase than that. But the point is, this is these are high level. Um, uh, major journalistic uh, outfits. Uh, we yep. were just talking before we started recording. There's a New York times article. Uh, I forget the title of it right now, but that was, that was the one we were talking about off of uh, drudge that um, again, these are not two bit outfits. They are recognizing the problem with the, with the, the China deal with Rome. Yeah. In fact, I think the piece that I sent you right before we started recording, you know, talking about this propaganda that, Oh, the, China is, is the most perfect um, implementation of social justice doctrine in the world today, the Chinese have demanded, like within the last two weeks, that all Catholic churches in China put signage on the front door forbidding children to enter the church. Children may not enter Catholic churches in China. And that's one of the most minor, that's one of the most minor government oppressions that's going on. I mean, we're talking about people who have been who have been put in prison, tortured, died in prison, and also people who have spent decades of their lives in prison for being Catholic in union with Rome and not in union with the fake government Chinese uh, pseudo Catholic Church. 
forced abortions, um, harvesting human organs from from living people. I mean, the, the human rights violations that still go on in China. And this is a this is a thing that Americans just don't want to think about and just don't want to talk about because Americans love buying their cheap Chinese crap. Let's be honest. Love being able to go not just to Walmart. Don't kid yourself. Love being able to go to the high, the fairly high-end shopping mall, and buy a bunch of clothes and shoes and this, that, and the other that are coming out of this this nation that has still an absolutely horrific, horrific human rights record, where human life is held basically as worthless. Okay, and but we but we're also economically dependent upon them. We're so addicted to their cheap crap made with de facto slave labor. Um, We all want our our baby televisions that we carry around in our pockets that are made in these Chinese factories. We want all want technology, this technology, that that's made in these Chinese factories. We want all this crap. And so when you start talking to people about this, man, they just they just don't want to be hearing it. They don't want to be hearing about these human rights violations. And I think. It bears repeating. We touched upon this um, in a previous podcast. I think a lot of people, especially Catholics, will just say, well, good grief. How many Catholics are there in China? There can't be that many. Well, as a percentage of the population, no. But in terms of absolute numbers, there's 65 million, which is more than the total population of Italy. Okay, every man, woman and child, I think there's only 60 million people in Italy. There's more Catholics in China than there are Catholics in Italy. So to make to make the argument that it doesn't matter. But you know what? If there were if there was one Catholic in China, it would matter. If there was one priest in China, it would matter. So that that argument is specious to to the hilt anyway. Um, I I forget where I heard this, but. uh it was something along the lines of that when an underground priest in China is is uh, selected for bishop and and um, I don't know if it's before or after he's consecrated, he actually will have a dental surgery where his his teeth are removed, and and uh, the the whole point to this is there is the expectation that if the Chinese find a, a, a an underground bishop, he's going to jail, and you don't get dental care in jail there. So it's like one of these things, like okay, you've been selected for for bishop, um, we need to get you prepared for jail. <laughs> Prepared for jail. Yeah, nice. But, but oh, the Chinese, they're, they're the best in the world. And, you know, Bergoglio and his ilk, man, they, they look at brutal, brutal regimes like this, and, and they, they respect them. I mean, they, they look at that, and they're, they get stars in their eyes. China, um, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia— they do nothing but but fawn and grovel turkey they do nothing but fawn and grovel at these people's feet it's it's because all they care about is power the the acquisition retention and wielding of power and when they see people doing this and being brutal and in and in inflicting their will unjustly on on massive populations of people man they they think that's awesome they think that's something that they should be emulating they think i want to be friends with those people i want to make an alliance with those people etc etc so it really it really shouldn't come as any surprise at all 
And actually, while we're we're talking about this, the 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 association with Rome and 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 China, given everything that's going on, and and also with with you mentioned uh, Bishop Barros, somebody just emailed in and has a really interesting comment. Are we to be surprised that such a great reformer? And he has that in air quotes, or actually quotes in the email, whose singular act of reform was to make it cheaper and faster for parents to get a certificate of nullity as being exposed as an un, as being unwilling to protect children from the bad behavior of adults. Well, of course. I mean, it's just, it's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. Um, I, I don't understand how anybody at this point can be particularly surprised by any of this. I certainly don't understand how anybody at this point can be scandalized by any of this. I, I know intellectually why people are scandalized, and we've talked about this ad nauseum. It's because they're operating from a, from a false premise that Bergoglio is the Pope. Um, and you that's I'm sorry folks it's just that's just wrong and you're going you are going to lose your faith and there are people on the trad right who are losing their faith right and left um I'm lo- people saying I'm losing my faith over what they've done to China I'm losing my faith over what they're doing with regards to trying to ratify sodomy and talking about blessing blessing sodomites and and so on and so forth um I'm I'm losing my faith over this business of canonizing Paul the 6th um Paul the Sixth isn't going to be canonized. Bergoglio and these to- and these anti-church toadies can stand on the loggia and make the make the proclamation until they're blue in the face. It doesn't make it so. It doesn't make it so. And, and while he's and it out, he might as well just canonize himself. I mean, Pope Saint Francis the first, first ever canonized Pope to canonize himself while he's still alive. Yep, Why absolutely. Not? Why not? It would it would it would have exactly the same level of force. It, there is, it's irrelevant. But it's because people are trying to put that square peg in the round hole and say this man Bergoglio, who is clearly so spectacularly malignant, he is the vicar of Christ on earth. He he is the beneficiary of the prayers of protection that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ specifically promised to the occupant of the of the Petrine Sea. Bergoglio is the is the beneficiary of this and we are all supposed to um to reconcile this in our minds. Clearly that isn't the case and we have we have Pope Ratzinger as the visible I mean, and I, I keep going back to this, this, this thought and this concept of the visibility of all of this and how important the visibility of the church is and how Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, the whole time has been completely visible and has been visibly manifesting the fact that he didn't that he didn't intend to fully resign the papacy. He still wears the white, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on. Um, Just the visibility of Ratzinger is so compelling and it's so unprecedented in the history of the church. And yet people have been, frankly, and I don't like to use this word. I think it's, it's been played out and it's overused, but bullied. People have been bullied, especially on the trad right, by some of these commentators, um, these talking heads, who have who have just castigated and cast anyone who even dared raise their hand and ask the question, wait a minute, we need to go back and look at what happened with Ratzinger's attempted abdication. We need to start asking some serious questions. And, you know, I, I could explain what a lot of these people's motivations are. Um, I can't do that. I can't do it in a public in a public forum like this. But I know what some of these people's motivations are. And friends, let me tell you, it's it's like 
seventh grade cafeteria nonsense. It's, you know, girls trying to impress boys, boys trying to stay in league with other boys. Um, it's, it's the most ridiculous, it's some of the most ridiculous, juvenile, idiotic um, motivation that you could possibly imagine. Take my word for that. Um, and that that's what's driving all this. These loud, noisy people on the trad right have just shut this whole thing down and said, no, you, can, you can't even talk about that. We'll, we'll talk about sedvacantism before we talk about whether or not uh, Ratzinger and his resignation were this, whether or not this resignation was validly executed or not. Um, it, it's really remarkable to watch in a sense. And there's a lot of people also who are involved in this, who, who want to keep, who are working one way or the other. Let, let's put it this way, whose livelihood is generated de- from, from the institutional church. And they're trying to defend, uh, you know, their income, their position and so forth. And it's just, it's pathetic. It's it's so pathetic to watch. Um, it was really interesting. A few a few months ago, someone a, a pretty small trad blog did just one of those casual little poll things. I wish Frank Walker at Canon Two Twelve would actually do this because he's got a, a much bigger audience and his sample i mean obviously his sample would just be trad catholics who are reading canon 212 but still we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people worldwide that are in frank walker's audience so it would be a pretty decent sized sample i wish he would do the same thing because it's been several months now do do a poll like that that says who do, who do you think is the pope do you think do you think bergoglio's the the one and only pope do you think Ratzinger is the one and only Pope? Do you think both Ratzinger and Bergoglio are the Pope? Or do you think there isn't a Pope? I think that probably covers everything. And see what the results of that turned out. Because the last time, the the other little Catholic blog, I think it was St. Louis Catholic, if I'm not mistaken. Little bitty blog. But the, the results, even before I drove traffic to it... Um, which in, in a certain sense, after I drove traffic to it, it was such a small blog. It kind of, I'll fully admit that, that that messes up the sample, you know. But even before I drove any traffic to it, the, it was still skewed. It was like it, this massive majority of people said, no, Ratzinger's the one and only Pope. Um, so I, I wish, if Frank's listening, Frank, I think, you should, I think you should do another one of those polls and like leave it up for a week you know, and, and see where we stand on this because uh, there's a, there's still a lot of people out there who are just terrified to talk about this and they, they get their comments, um, deleted, erased, uh, purged from, from whatever thread they're on. There are a few websites that have literally put my name as a, as a blocking parameter. You know, if, if Barnhart comes up, they, um, it's either auto deleted or the administrator goes and looks immediately um, and if it says anything about Pope Benedict being the one and only Pope, they they purge the comment. That's still going on, but uh, I, I don't know. It's it's dark days, but it's not that dark. I mean, that's the thing. We're not abandoned. Our Lord has not abandoned us. Um, and people losing their faith 
it's it's not necessary. It's completely unnecessary. You have to you have to be holding a false premise and you have to have a just a, a spectacular lack of faith in our Lord and his promises and not acknowledge the visibility of what is right in front of us. I mean, Pope Ratzinger, Pope Ratzinger is right there and he's he's in the news. In fact, I'm surprised at how much he's been in the news, how much he said. I figured it would be absolute total radio silence and it has not been that at all. Somebody get this uh, this guy a phone so he can make a public announcement. Well, I, it's one, one one press conference, and that press conference could literally just be a person in this day and age with a smartphone. You know, with the make sure that your memory's free, turn on the video, and that that is all that's required to hold a press conference anymore. He could end all this. He could he could end all of it immediately. And and you know, I think again we've talked about this, but I, it, even if he's worried about being physically harmed, or or even his brother who is still alive being physically harmed, the way the way you combat that is you run at them, you run at them, and you and you say, here's the deal, I was I was coerced, intimidated, threatened, da 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 da. I fear for my own life. I fear for the life of my family members. They can't touch him at that point. They can't touch him at that point. That's one of the best defenses that you have is to go public. Well, and, and, and if I, they do, and he's doing this for the benefit of the faith, uh, I'll, I'll I'll believe that canonization uh, because then then you'll have uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth martyr. Exactly, exactly, precisely right. Um, I, I want to back at, up and, and and talk about something you mentioned before about people being scandalized and and to the point of either not entering the church or or possibly thinking about leaving the faith, mm-hmm. regardless of what which bishop and white you think is the pope. It, it, it called to mind a phrase that uh, I want to say came from the the TV series Band of Brothers, where there was uh, one of the officers was getting after a junior officer for not saluting him. And he says, you salute the off, you salute the, the rank, not the man. And for mm-hmm. Catholics who are scandalized about this or, or Christians who are thinking about becoming <laughs> non-Catholic Christians. OK, I'm, I'm tripping on, on, on the alternate language here. Uh, if right. you're thinking about becoming language or. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try it again. <clears throat> I was sick last week, but but it hasn't all gone away. Okay, so if you're thinking about becoming Catholic and you're looking at what's going on in Rome and scandalized by this, look, we 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 pray for the the Pope. We 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 are subservient to um we we're subservient to the Pope to the office of the papacy, not necessarily the human who's in the office right now. We 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 are obedient to Peter, not the one who's in in the place right now. And you know we have examples in history where. He, one of the one of the great ones is um, Saint Thomas More. He he was killed for upholding the dignity of the office of the Pope, even though he didn't like who the, who the Pope was. He if it was up to him, he would have picked somebody else entirely. But on the principle that we are obedient to the Pope of Rome, or to the Bishop of Rome, that's that's the critical part there. And and the Popes come and go, and some of them do damage. Some do a lot more damage than others. Um, mm, I, I don't I don't know. I I can't. I can't go go where you're going with, with this line of thought because we get into a, a, an ontological question: Who is the Pope? I mean, this is this is kind of going back to um, Pope Ratzinger's warped metaphysics and how his metaphysics doesn't revolve around whether something is or is not, but rather only what it means. Which is the which I'm convinced is is the genesis of all of this in his mind. Who the Pope is really, really, really matters. The identity of that of that man 
matters. And you can't look at Bergoglio and say, well, whether he is or whether he isn't, it's incredible. It is of the utmost importance whether he is or whether he isn't, because if if he isn't, then our Lord's promises are hold true, even though Ratzinger is the worst pope in history for what he's done. He hasn't done anything even remotely close. Remember what we're talking about here. Bergoglio is and already has published things and declared them to be part of his, quote, authentic magisterium, which literally, literally upend the entire notion of objective moral norms and objective truth. You cannot anymore at this point say there, there have been good and bad popes. I mean, we're, we're so, this is so far beyond that, that that argument can no longer be made, I don't think, in good faith. Object, uh, turning over the entire notion that there's such a thing as an objective moral norm, I mean, I mean this, is, this is to upend everything. This is to upend absolutely everything in the entire universe. And that's what Bergoglio is trying to do. And it, it matters it matters who the Pope is. I, I, I just don't think we can go down this road anymore and tell ourselves, because look, it, what happens when they force Bergoglio out and we get anti-Pope Pietro Perelin, who's every ba- bit as bad um, theologically, etc., as, um, as Bergoglio is, except he's got about 30 more IQ points than Bergoglio, and he's 63 years old. Does it matter whether or not he's the Pope? You're damn right it matters whether or not he's the Pope. In fact, I'll even take this further. I think one of the gravest acts of violence that can be done against the office of the papacy, which we all agree that we love, we all agree is absolutely essential. It is essential for the church militant. It is it is how our Lord, it is the rock upon which our Lord built his church on earth. You have to have somebody in charge. The hierarchy is of the utmost importance. It is end, it is indispensable. It is indispensable. And so the greatest act of violence that you could potentially, or one of the greatest act of violence that you could potentially do against this, this miracle, which is the office of the papacy, is to say that a man who isn't the pope is the pope. Now, this has happened before in history, absolutely 100% granted, St. Vincent Ferrer said, was mistaken, and said that a man who wasn't the pope was the pope. This is a different circumstance because back up until now, when there has been any controversy or question, it was a purely political dynamic. It was a political dynamic in terms of very, very earthly politics, running, you know, controlling swaths of real estate on the Italian peninsula is basically what we're talking about here. That is not what this is. That is not what this is. This is about destroying humankind. This is about this is about attacking and destroying every human being alive today and any human beings that are going to be born in the future. That is what we're talking about here. When you call a man who is not the Pope the Pope, 
what you're doing is you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm indifferent to this. I'm indifferent to this dynamic, but maybe, maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. No, no, it, it really, really, really matters who the Pope is. Um, it's, it's a question of metaphysics. It it does matter who the Pope is. I'm just saying that it, it can also be a situation where, um, if you're not sure who the Pope is, that doesn't mean it's, it's game over. You've lost somehow. It, um, if you're not sure who the Pope is, um, I mean, to be honest, we've, how long has it been? Even when we had the anti-Pope situations of the middle ages, we didn't have two mm-hmm. bishops in Rome wearing white at the same time. Were there, was there never a circumstance where there were two guys who were, or the, would, the one, one would be the same away city, and one they? would be there? One was in Avignon, one was in Rome, and I believe at one point they tried to settle this by having a a, a conference in Ravenna or something and elected a third pope, which that's a, right, an entire right. joke. You know, <laughs> we got these two competing standards. Let's 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 solve this problem by creating a third. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe they were, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this point. Um, I don't think they were in the same city at the same yeah. time. You're, I think you're probably right. I, I, they would have been at war against each other, and therefore both of them would never have been ensconced in Rome at the same time. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think I think when I'm making the argument, and making this argument as vehemently as I am, of how important the identity of the papacy is, it's precisely because we we love the papacy so much and so um it's been a couple of months or more than a couple of months ago now but one of the barnhart benefactor mass priests um sent me an email and he said what what i've started doing when i say the old mass or when i say the mass and i and it's time to commemorate the pope in the teigeter is i just don't say the name i i say and you know the the prayer blah 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 pray for the pray for the pope um and and don't put and he doesn't say a name after that. And I thought that was an extremely elegant solution to this situation. You know, obviously a priest wants wants to be correct. That's a way that that is a workaround. And I don't think that this is sleazy at all. I think it's a very in fact, I think it's a very prudent and wise workaround to say, all right, when I'm offering the mass, I have these massive doubts clearly about who who the vicar of Christ on earth is, um, I'm just going to not say the name. And I'm just, you know, in that moment during the holy sacrifice, that's just going to go to our Lord. And our Lord knows. And and our lady knows. And, and the graces will be bestowed. And the prayers will be offered for the vicar of Christ on earth. Um, praise God. And, and there there is one. That there is one right now. Now, if, if Pope Ratzinger dies, um, this opens up a whole new can of worms. Um, the terror, the terror that I have is that they force Bergoglio out. A, a faux conclave is called. Pietro Perelin is elected now the next anti-pope. He's 63 years old. Okay, so you've got this anti-pope who's been falsely elected in a faux conclave. Not long after that, Pope Ratzinger dies. Let's say Pope Ratzinger dies two years later. Pietro Perelin is now 65 years old and could live conceivably another 30 years. This is, this is just horrifying. I mean, this, this can get so horrifying so quick. That's why it's so essential, I think, that we have to be right about this. And now here's another compromise in terms of prudence. Let, let's go and let's say 
let's go with the super nerd position and say, we, we just don't know. We just don't know. Fair enough. Fair enough. I hear you, man. Don't think I don't hear you. How about this? Get rid of, um, get rid of Bergoglio and then do nothing until Ratzinger is dead. In prudence, does, doesn't it just seem that that would be the most prudent thing to do? You have to wait until Ratzinger is dead. You could set up just kind of administrative thing. He obviously probably, I don't know, I, I keep praying. I keep praying that he calls a press conference. But, you know, working off the assumption that he won't call a press conference and he won't uh, walk back his, his substantial air and all this. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. You don't want to administer the church. That's fine. We can set up, what, what would it call? Like a, like a regency. It would kind of be the equivalent of a regency, an, an administrative function. We'll just hold the thing in a state of kind of, of, of political suspension. We'll, we'll be able to continue to operate the day-to-day operations of the church. Ratzinger's sitting there in his, in his little um, Mater Ecclesiae monastery, praying and doing whatever it is that he's doing. He refuses to administer the church, so we'll just put the, we'll put the administrative functions of the church on cruise, on autopilot. Let that take care of itself. Make sure the the checks get signed and the salaries get paid and all of that, and then wait for Ratzinger to die. How about that? Can we talk about that? Just just in the spirit in the spirit purely of prudence, can we talk about that? I mean, I'm trying to throw as many solutions out here as we possibly can. But we we have to get this right, and we cannot let a 63-year-old man be ensconced as anti-pope, and then and and who and a man who's done what he's done with regards to with regards to China is theologically obviously unsound as they all are, um, and has has sat by and watched all of the damage that Bergoglio has done and not said a word. Let's let's not forget about that. Where has this Pietro Perelin been while while Bergoglio was putting forth this Amoris Laetitia, the joy of sodomy garbage and up and completely destroying the sacrament of marriage and completely destroying the notion of, you know, the sacrament of penance and encouraging people to go and receive Holy Communion sacrilegiously? Where has this guy been? You know, don't tell me how great this Pietro Perelin is. Oh, he's got to be better. He hasn't said a word. And, you know, in fairness... Well, Cardinal Burke has said a word, but he's not said enough. Where's the correction? Where's the correction, Cardinal Burke? Uh, that's another tangent. Focusing back again on Perelin, because it, let, Cardinal Burke could never ever be elected, could never be elected the Pope, um, even in a faux conclave. So, you know, don't don't get this tunnel vision and think, oh boy, this is great. This might be the end of Bergoglio. This might force his resignation. Careful what you wish for, man, because look look what's coming up behind him. It's this Pietro Perelin character. There shouldn't be any conclave at all until Ratzinger is dead. Yeah. <sighs> it just we just keep coming back to this over and over and over again. And I'm sorry, but it's I mean it's it's so consumptive because it's so important. Um, well, the idea of going into some kind of um, administrative abeyance, I don't know if that's ever happened before in the church. I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it had, it would certainly have a parallel in, in terms of Roman authority. It'd be like the last years of the reign of uh, emperor Claudius. Now, granted you got Nero after Claudius, but still the idea being Claudius was offshore um, 
he was still the reigning emperor. All the official decisions still had to have his signature on it, but the Senate ran things at that point. Oh, super nerd. I strongly suspect that 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 and by the way, good word, abeyance, administrative abeyance. I strongly suspect that that has happened many, many, many times. How many I mean, how many men get old and before they die, they lose their faculties, they become senile or some pope at some point. Remember, the popes hardly ever used to appear publicly. Pope so-and-so, you know, Pope, I'm just making this up, Innocent II or whatever, could have had some massive stroke years before he died. Heck, we don't know. And in fact, common sense kind of tells us that the odds are that throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, with the papacy being something that was a life office, that men got sick, they had strokes, they got you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you know, don't think that any of that is new and modern and it's never happened before. Of course that's happened before. Sure, there have been these periods where, you know, the people inside the Roman Curia saw that the Pope was, you know, gravely ill and in essentially palliative, the palliative care phase of life, just waiting. Everybody was kind of just waiting for him to die. He had absolutely no capacity to do anything. Sure. They would set up these administrative, you know, things and, and keep the church going. Of course that's happened before. And of course it could happen again now, especially in a situation like this. You just, the problem is you need people of integrity to do that. And unfortunately that is what is so utterly, totally, and completely lacking in, in Rome and in the church at large today amongst, you know, the bishops and so forth, the bishops and cardinals is there's just such a dearth of integrity and that's scary. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, obviously they, they need our prayers and that's one of the things, you know, we, we've quoted St. John used before we get the pastors we deserve yep. partly because we, we don't know the faith. Um, we, we don't know the, the, the voice of the, of the shepherd to quote Jesus. Um, but we don't pray for our pastors either. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a lack of charity on our, on our part. And this kind of dovetails in a, in a way with one of the emails that, that we got about, um, praying for people in, in difficult situations. And you look at the mm-hmm. hierarchy of the church, the people who are being caught red handed with in, in sodomical situations or, or with, with boys or whatnot, it's hard to pray for these people. It really is. I mean, because it's it, the, the, like the, the recidivism of people who are into those sins is so high. It's like, it's almost like, why do I bother praying for them? They, they are not going to reform, but yet they need the prayers. Well, what about a situation uh, more germane to this email? And, and this is something that a lot of people I'm sure have to have to deal with, unfortunately, is what about when you have family members or friends who die in, let's just say, less than an ideal circumstances? How do yeah, you, how do you, it, it's, how, it's, it's, it's so hard common. to pray for them in some cases. Exactly. It's, and it's so common. It's a common problem right now today coming off of, you know, the generation, the baby boomer generation who, I mean, those people just fell apart morally. So many of them, so much divorce, et cetera, et cetera those people fell apart morally. And so there's a lot of people our age, super nerd, we're in our early 40s and younger than us who are now looking at these situations and they're realizing that, good grief, according to what the church teaches, my parents, my, I mean, anyone, anyone, friends, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, cousins, 
teachers, you know, anyone in your life. You can look at all of these people in your life who have now died and died either completely and totally outside the church or for some people. And I think, you know, I got an email and I I couldn't quite tell from the email whether or not the person's parent was inside or outside of the church or had ever been Catholic. I can't quite remember. But, you know, just in, in any case, in any case, People who can look at the situation of, let's say, for example, a parent, um, divorced, remarried, completely unrepentant of this. And um, I received an email, and it was a very specific case in which the parent, the deceased parent, had died extremely quickly, died like instantly. And so, oh, goodness, not, not even a moment, not even a moment to make any, to think that there was even any sort of an act of, of perfect or even imperfect contrition made. It was that quick of a death. Um, and this, this is such a common problem. And there's a lot of people who are realizing this. Their eyes are opening. I mean, we thank God for the people who email, who are emailing in and, and looking at, you know, the questions of, sexual morality that we've been talking about on the blog, but we're not going to get into that on the podcast. It just, some things are, are better in writing. And, you know, if you have to discuss them at all, they shouldn't be discussed necessarily verbally, especially in mixed company, in mixed company. Um, but looking at instances of these family members who just almost certainly didn't make it. And the question is, what do you do? What do you do? And it's a very simple, elegant, beautiful answer your parents, parent or parents didn't die well. You pray for them. You still pray for, for their souls. And if, if they are in hell, then what happens is when you're praying for your parents who you, you don't know one way or the other, none of us know one way or the other who's in hell and who isn't, the, the merits of those prayers, if they cannot be applied, sadly, to um, the person that you're praying for, let's say your parent, then those, the merits of those prayers are applied to another human being who is in purgatory. And almost always, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a person who's in purgatory who has been completely forgotten in in this world today. Think about how many how many human beings have existed and think about how what percentage of the people who have ever existed in the world up until now and have died are now totally and completely forgotten. They're completely out of living memory of anyone on on the planet. And a lot of those people there isn't even any um written record that they ever existed. For some people, there are written records that they existed, but there's a lot of people, a lot of human beings that there's no, not even a written record anywhere that they existed. And so obviously no one is praying for them by name. Um, and there are masses being said for all the poor souls, but there's no one praying for them specifically by name. So if you're praying for a, 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 deceased person who is in fact in hell and this is actually the domain of our lady is the mediatrix of all graces she redirects those graces towards a poor soul in purgatory who is completely and totally forgotten so but you in charity you need to keep praying for your deceased family members even if it appears that that the odds are that they didn't make it um because we do never know we do never know there could god can work with with almost anything. Um, so 
keep praying for them. And um, anything to add to that, Super Nerd? Anything I'm forgetting about this whole concept? Uh, just remember. Um, that that's the, that's the most important part is remember to pray. Uh, one of the practices I think I've mentioned before is that when you know, my family, when we're driving, whenever we pass by a cemetery, we say a, a quick prayer for the poor souls. Uh, just something, Indeed. just something simple like that. Something to jog your memory. Just make, make a habit of it. Oh, I know a, an important point that needs to be made. Um, that there are some people who think that it is a display of intense piety or charity to say something like, um, well, if, if my mom's in hell, I want to be in hell too. That is extraordinarily dangerous and you must never do this. I've actually encountered this also with women who have had abortions and in trying, trying to come to grips with the sin of abortion, they've then made an idol of the dead children, or we can make idols of our dead family and friends even and saying, well, if, if mom's in hell, then I want to go to hell too. That is a violation of the first commandment. That is idolatry. That is putting something above God. Now this is going to sound harsh, but it's also the truth, especially in light of what I just said, keep praying for them, keep praying for them. What you also have to understand and you have to come to grips with intellectually and then also spiritually is that human beings who are dead, the question is no longer open as to where they are. And if they're in hell, it's over. It's over. You have to move on and you have to you have to just like they say on the airplane, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first and then worry about other people. You cannot be committing idolatry and and saying, well, I want to go to hell. There's first of all, you're committing the sin of idolatry. You're putting something else above God. There's nothing. There is nothing better and there is nothing above God. God is first, period, full stop, period, full stop. Your mother is below God. Your children are below God. Your spouse is below God. Absolutely everyone and everything in this world is below God. God is priority number one. Spending eternity with him in heaven is priority number one, period. And if, you're, if your life is rightly ordered thusly, what proceeds out of that and how your life will develop, you say, well, that's crazy. If you say I should love God more than I love my husband, then my marriage is going to fall apart. No, it's exactly the opposite. It is exactly the opposite. Your marriage will be strengthened and fortified if both you and your spouse put God first. Then the charity that comes out of that, the charity for each other that comes out of that, precisely because God is first in your life, is going to strengthen and fortify your marriage. Number two point of why this is incredibly dangerous is because the demons are listening to everything that you say, and they are legalist bastards. And if you say, if you start saying things like, I want to go to hell, I want to be in hell with my mother, da-da-da-da-da, those bastards will hold you to that. And you know what that does? It opens the door to demonic oppression and possession, big time. If you start saying things like that, you are you are throwing the door open to the demonic and um, exorcists report that this this is a big problem. They're saying, you know, how are people getting into this people? Yeah, there are some people who still are engaging with fortune tellers and psychics and Ouija boards and that crap. But a lot of these people 
who open the door to demonic possession, a lot of times it's women. It's women who have done the whole, I want to be in hell with my dead child. I want to be in hell with my husband, but da, 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 da. And that's what does it. That's that throwing open of the door. So you, you have to be very, very careful about this. So in one sense, yes, you, you pray for the dead. You continue to pray for the dead. But in the other sense, you have to, you have to realize and understand that if, if they're in hell, it's over. It's over, period. And you have to move on and you have to get yourself to heaven. You have to be with God. If they didn't make it, I mean, that's a terrible tragedy. Obviously, every lost human soul is, a, is, is just a, an infinite tragedy. But it, it's also locked in. It's done. Nobody who's in hell is going to get sprung. There's a, there was a wicked movie about 20 years ago and it starred Robin Williams. And what was that called? What dreams may come or something like that. And it was this movie about this man. And I can't remember what it is. But long story short, wife ends up in hell. And Robin Williams goes, goes to hell and retrieves his dead wife from hell. Um, this, this, is, this is a terrible, wicked, wicked premise. Um, precisely well it's it's so wildly theologically incorrect you can't go get anybody out of hell it, it it's over that's that's the point the particular judgment that's it man it's it's yay or nay it's up or down um and there's there's nobody being um being retrieved from hell there's people people go to purgatory and you can pray people out of purgatory but purgatory is the antechamber to heaven it's it's the waiting room for heaven um hell is hell and you don't ever get out of there when it's done it's done so just just be aware of that and make sure that you don't fall for all of this sappy sentimental you know neo-pagan garbage um that sadly a lot of people believe and a lot of catholics believe because they're so poorly catechized I was going to say it almost in a way you could almost make the excuse that it's it's a retelling. Is it Orpheus? The story of Orpheus from the from from Greek mythology where he goes down into Hades to get somebody out. But that's Greek mythology. It's not real, people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and, and something else that came to mind too, talking about um, you know the, the idea you need to love God first. It's if you can't honestly, and whether it's your spouse or anybody else walking this mortal coil, if you can't look at them and say, "I love God." I, I love you more, more than myself and less than God. You got your priorities a little messed up. That's right. That's right. And, it, it, you know, our Lord says that in the Gospels. And I think a lot of people read that um, in the, you know, in the shallow contemporary Protestant and, um, and Novus Ordo Catholic milieu, our Lord's words that say, if you don't love me more than and goes down the list of everybody, you know, parent, spouse, children, <laughs> if you don't love me more than these, and people are like, man, that Jesus, he was, he was quite the, quite the narcissist. He was telling everybody that, that they should love him more than they love their own spouse, more than they love their own family. Um, yeah, because he's God, he's God, he's God incarnate. And that's, that kind of goes to C.S. Lewis, you know, C.S. Lewis made the point that either, either Christ was in fact is in fact god or he's he's a he was a complete madman a complete and total madman and there's no space in the middle he leaves no wiggle room in between you cannot look at the words of our lord in the gospels and say that he was just you know a wise philosopher or a prophet or something like this 
either he's God or he was an absolutely despicable madman because he did say things like, you have to love me more than your family, your children, your spouse, everybody. I mean, who, who could say that? Only God could say that. And so I think a lot of people who, who aren't, who are shaky on the divinity of Christ, um, they look at scripture passages like that and they are, and they're repulsed by them. And that's, that's precisely because they're shaky on the divinity of Christ, which a lot of people today are. Well, and as, as Christ says, a stumbling block. If you don't understand who he is and what your responsibility is with regard to him, then it's a stumbling block. And the word, the Latin word for stumbling block is scandulum, where we have the word scandal. So it's all, it's all there, folks. And we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Where are we on the old clock here? What's, what's the... About an hour and eight minutes. Hour and eight minutes? I think, you know, we did the double. We did the, we did the huge two-hour double episode last time. So I think this time we should go back to the, the normal hour-plus paradigm. And, yeah, I wasn't, and I wasn't we'll, anticipating uh, missing a week, but um, I, I did actually say, though, that was a down payment toward missing something when we did the double episode. So I know, I know. It's almost as if you saw it coming. <laughs> um. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there'd be I knew there'd be a possibility for it, but I, I didn't I didn't know I was going to be getting sick. But anyway, um, feedback, comments, questions, um, or like the Dallas tax accountant who who sent me an email that I partially read during the podcast. The email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors are Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays and Wednesdays. Let's see, did I get that right? Uh, plus a weekly requiem mass, and now Friday, Saturday, and, and Sunday. Now. So basically Yay! every every day that ends in a Y, there's a benefactor mass going on and then the uh, the the requiem once a week as well. Please join yep. your intentions with these masses uh, or with the priests who are offering these masses. Mm-hmm. Um, this podcast is a super nerd media production, and I'd like to thank Jeffrey, Barbara, PMJ, uh, and PMJ who donated via PayPal, as well as Carolyn and Richard and James who mailed in donations. Thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about this, uh, you can go to supernerdmedia.com and there's some information there. Also, the Matthew 1720 initiative. Uh, we covered the, the general idea of what this is all about um, before. Um, and with Lent coming up, by the way, this is probably something yes. also, also maybe to consider. Uh, in fact, the Matthew 1720 initiative is fasting uh, twice a week for the resolution of the current issue of the papacy. And, um, of course, fasting is a big deal for Lent as well. Do we want to cover that real quick or just real quick? There is a plug that I, that I promised I would make, um, a few days ago, (laughs) excuse me. I posted a link to a new little book. That's lovely for Lent. It's a compendium of 31 meditations on our Lord's passion that has been typeset and, um, republished. What I posted a link to was the paper copy if anyone would be interested in the e-version, um, the the editor who put this together has now made it available in an e-version. So I think what I'll do is, we can we put a link to the e-version in the show notes of this podcast? And it's really cool because um, it's 31 days. And one of the things, in addition to doing a fast during Lent, one one thing that you should do is try to pick up a new habit, which then the intention would be that you just continue it on in perpetuity, and that Lent is the jumpstart for this new healthy habit. And um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing this 31-day rotation of these meditations on our Lord's Passion. 
do it for Lent and then just keep doing it throughout the year because meditating on our Lord's passion, talk about the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's hard. It's hard to think about him as a legal system or a philosophy or as a, a nebulous, um, indifferent, indifferent deity when you're thinking about and med- and meditating on and praying on his passion and death on the cross. Um, it really, it makes him personal. And I think it really allows a person to cultivate a personal relationship with him. There's nothing, there's nothing more personal and, and more, and a greater indicator of our Lord's humanity in addition to his divinity um, as his passion. So I think it's a very solitary thing to do. So we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. Both the uh, E version and the dead tree version. And cool. uh, in terms of, uh, I'm glad you brought up the idea of, of the positive attribute to bring up during Lent as well. So it, you, you give up something, um, a legitimate good. I mean, don't tell me you're going to be giving up adultery. You should be doing that already. Right. Yeah. Um, that's not, so cool. for example, giving up dark chocolate, which is hard, <laughs> uh, but you also need to add something in. So like spiritual reading is one of them. We just mentioned this book. Um, if you, if you tend to listen to a lot of podcasts, there are some sermon, uh, podcasts that are worthwhile listening to. Maybe, maybe we can put some links up to that. Absolutely. Uh, if you, if you have an audible account, um, one of, one of the books I listen to every, every Lent is the, uh, the translation of the Dolores Passion, uh, mm. written by Anne Catherine Emmerich. And that is, mm-hmm. that is, um, a very interesting book to say the least. You're going to get something out of it for, for, uh, for sure. And um, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, then you've, you've pretty much seen Emmerich. Emmer- I think Gibson said that The Passion of the Christ was a combination of um, John's Gospel and Emmerich. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so the, in addition to denying yourself of some legitimate good, you also add on to it. Uh, spiritual reading, reading the scriptures is, is one of them, or reading uh, any, any number of things, really. Uh, we can probably put together a nice little laundry list of links for this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No problem. In fact, uh, plan on it, and we'll probably keep adding to this list. So if, if you tend to get your list just on, on your, your iPod or Android or whatever you're listening to this on, uh, there, there's, there are limited show, to show notes and, and links and descriptions on, on your podcast player. But uh, go back to the, to the uh, podcast page on Ann's website, and we're going to keep adding to this list of links. Cool. Very good. It, Great it, idea. It could, it, could, it could become its own page <laughs> for mm-hmm, Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I've got. Um, anything else? My undying gratitude, once again. Um, it's really cool that the Mass is being now said for y'all every day. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Um, I hope it's a consolation. I, I'm, obviously, when there's as many people as we're talking about in this audience, um, obviously, you know, tragedies are going to befall folks. Um, deaths, diagnoses of illnesses, so on and so forth. I, one of the, in addition to the fruits of the Mass is being offered in and of themselves for the salvation of your soul, I really and truly hope that um, when dark days do come to you, that it will be a consolation to you to know that the Holy and August Sacrifice of Calvary on that day, as, ba- as bad as a bad day might come, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass was offered for you on that day, and those graces are flowing, and I can't thank everybody enough. If I could do more, I would, but you know, I don't think there is more that a human being could do. When you're talking about something that's an infinite quantity like the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, I, I think it's kind of silly to talk about, quote-unquote, doing more, but if I could do more, I would. Okay. And, um, for my part, I will try to stay, uh, not sick so that we can do this again next weekend. (laughs) And until next time, I am super nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks so much guys. God bless.